You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, to see the past, the present, and the future, just look up. Today, we're talking about two significant advances in science and technology that may not sound related, but they are. The first is probably familiar. It's the James Webb Space Telescope that's been beaming back these incredibly detailed images from galaxies far, far away. The other may be less familiar. It's NASA's SWAT mission. That's a satellite that uses something called remote sensing to take detailed measurements of the planet's surface water and ocean topography. So, SWAT. Together, these two things represent a leap in our ability to access space to gather vast amounts of data about the status of our planet right now and to look back in time and into the future. That's useful not just for pure science and discovery, but to make decisions about our everyday lives. Let's jump right in with the James Webb Space Telescope. And to do that, I have the help of my colleague, Lauren Grush, who's on the Space Beat for Bloomberg. Lauren, I want to start by asking you about the James Webb Space Telescope. I think we've all been looking at those amazing pictures coming back. Uh, It launched in December of 2021. Why is this thing such a big deal? Well, you have to understand how astronomy works, right? We're essentially trying to map out our neighborhood without ever leaving our house. What a telescope like JWC does is it gives us an even bigger, I guess, magnifying glass, if you will, to look even deeper and farther into space than we we can before. So it's not only is it located, you know, roughly one million miles from Earth, that's, you know, extremely far, but also it has the biggest mirror that we've sent into space that can collect even more light than we've ever collected before. So that is our best tool for being able to see into the deepest recesses of the universe that and learning more about, you know, what the earliest galaxies looked like that formed right after the Big Bang. I've heard it described as you're not really looking at distance, you're looking at time, because you're like looking so far back in time, anything you're seeing could be potentially billions of years old. Right, because, you know, light does take time to travel to our eyes. And so when you're gathering light from such deep distances, that light has spanned, you know, 
billions of light years to reach JWST's mirrors. And so what you're really seeing when you look at those images is how those galaxies looked billions of years ago. What was it like as someone who covers space to watch that thing launch? Was that like a big moment for just you? Well, I like to say that the James Webb Space Telescope has kind of two chapters in my reporting history. You know, people don't think about it now because it's in space and it's working as it's supposed to. But most of JWST's lifetime was marked by cost overruns and development delays. You know, we had all these promises that it was going to launch, you know, many years ago. And then, uh, you know, we would constantly get new updates. Oh, it's going to take more time. It's going to take more testing. And so, you know, it was always kind of a long running joke. You know, was it ever actually going to launch? And would we actually be able to afford it before Congress pulled the plug? And then also there was just kind of a general terror, not just among reporters, but also among the astronomy community because of how JWST had to launch. Producer Catherine Fink sat down with senior project scientist Dr. John Mather at his home in Maryland. Here's what he told her about developing the James Webb Space Telescope. The biggest challenges were that it's huge. Uh, it's bigger than the rocket. And so it has to be folded up to fit inside the rocket. And it also has to be cold uh, so that it doesn't emit its own infrared light. Uh, and that means it's got to be protected by a gigantic umbrella, which we call a sunshade, that's as big as a tennis court. That also has to be unfolded in outer space. And because it's so far away from Earth, we can't go fix it if anything's wrong. So some major challenges here which require serious engineering. Um, it was harder than we thought it would be. And uh, we ran into budget trouble because, well, we just didn't know how hard it was going to be. So fortunately, our uh, funding agencies, the Congress, uh, the international partners, they all said, well, that's true, it's harder than we thought, but this is the only way to get this. So we better keep on going. And so we finally finished it and launched it on Christmas morning, 2021. And it was a perfect launch. We were all kind of on pins and needles for a good solid month after it launched, but now we're in this new chapter, which is, you know, the discovery phase. and. It, you know, I think most people don't even remember the first phase, the first chapter, because we're getting back such stunning imagery and amazing science from the telescope, which is what the astronomers and scientists and engineers work so hard to achieve to begin with. So it's definitely all been worth it. And it has been nice to see the narrative change into discovery now. And this was part of an international partnership. Who else is involved in the project? Europe was also involved. They provided the launch vehicle for this, the Ariane 5, which launched JWST into space. And it actually did such a good job with its launch that it put it on a great trajectory so that JWST will actually last longer than they even anticipated. And so it really was a global project. I mean, scientists around the world are are all vying for time on this telescope. So it wasn't just NASA. You know, NASA was the one that you know, provided the bulk of the money. Northrop Grumman was the primary contractor. And then various scientists and astronomers from around the world are also involved. Catherine asked Dr. Mather what questions he was most eager to answer about our galaxy. The nature of the cosmic dark matter and the cosmic dark energy are very puzzling. Um, astronomers, physicists did not expect them. 
there was some evidence from a long time ago that they might be real, but we didn't expect them. We don't understand why they're there. And so we're all hunting for more evidence about that. Will we ever understand? Maybe not. What happened um, to, to grow the first galaxies? You know, every big galaxy has a black hole in the middle, a big one. Uh, they're called supermassive, so they're like a million or a billion times the mass of the sun. We don't know whether the galaxy made the black hole or the black hole made the galaxies, which came first. Uh, we would certainly like to know, are there planets anything like Earth out there? So we know that there are planets of the right size and temperature to be like Earth. The next big step um, after the telescopes that we're already building is something called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. And it would be about the size of the web, only much more accurate and capable of making such a good image that you could see a little Earth next to the star that it orbits as a separate image. And then we can say, well, does it have water and oxygen and carbon dioxide and things like that that would be a hint that it's alive. So here on Earth, of course, the oxygen comes from plants and algae. So if we find it out there, then we'll have a long discussion about what it means, but it's a hint that it, another little planet could be alive. I think that's what's so exciting about JWST is that it really is designed to tell us things that we can't even give it prompts for and to you know, look even deeper than we could even think possible. I, I mean, one of the most amazing parts of it was when it first launched, you know, scientists were getting data back so quickly and um, analyzing it so fast that they were constantly breaking the record for finding, you know, the most distant galaxy that has ever been found. And, you know, they would find it one day and then like a week later, they would find another more distant one. So the rate at which we're learning new things from this telescope is so rapid and fast. And so I think it's only a matter of time before it's telling us something that we didn't even anticipate to look for. When we come back, a scientist who will use the Webb telescope to peer into black holes. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. To hear more about the kind of data that's come in from the Webb Telescope so far, Catherine checked in with Dr. Priyamvita Natarajan. She's an astrophysicist who studies black holes. Her team has been awarded time with the telescope later this year, and already all these new discoveries from other scientists using the instrument have kept her pretty busy. You, of course, study black holes. Could you just give a brief description for those like myself who just have a hard time wrapping our heads around what a black hole is? 
One way to think about a black hole is that it is a place where gravity is so intense that almost anything that comes close gets captured by the intense gravity. They are such strongly aggregated, dense clumps of matter. They're the end states of stars. So when stars burn out all their fuel, they explode and they can leave behind if they started life as a pretty massive star, very compact objects. So for example, for if the Earth were to behave like a black hole and have the intense gravity that a black hole uh, has, we'd have to scrunch the entire Earth to the size of a penny. That's when that compact. Wow. And that's when its gravity would have the intensity of that of a black hole. So what is a typical day like as someone who researches black holes? Is there a typical day? There is no typical day. <laughs> and, uh, in particular, with James Webb right now, I'm looking for any new um, findings about distant black holes. Where uh, James Webb has imaged some fantastic nearby black holes, two galaxies that harbor black holes in their inner regions are very, very dusty. So, you know, uh, James Webb has been able to cut through right into the heart of this galaxy, look at the dust and given us a really clearer view than we've ever had before. And so we can actually see the impact of the black hole in the region around. So matter falls into the black hole and some portion of the rest mass energy of the matter that is swirling in gets converted into radiation. So that heats up in the vicinity of the black hole. So these were all sort of, you know, theoretically, we had worked this all out. And uh, and James Webb, uh, JWST, is actually revealing all the sort of ionized hot gas that we expected. But now we're actually seeing it um, really up close. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so you mentioned the distant black holes, what would those tell us if we're able to get data from the telescope versus the ones you just talked about? Well, the distant black holes, you know, obviously the question is of the origin, right? Where did the first black holes come from? James Webb has the capacity to look back into the infant universe and actually reveal the presence and catch the first black holes in action. So we don't quite know how the first black holes uh, grow, whether, you know, we think that the end states of stars could produce the first lot of uh, black hole seeds. But there are also other physical mechanisms. So people like me and many other researchers have proposed like direct formation, bypassing the formation of a star and just forming a black hole just from the gas, just, you know, in the early universe is so violent that you can actually condense a lot of gas very rapidly and make a seed black hole that is much more massive, much bigger than the ones you could get from the end states of stars. So I think what the first black holes really are, how they grow, because we believe that the black hole at the center of our own galaxy, right? The Milky Way has a black hole at its center that is four million times the mass of the sun. You know, it's like wanting to see the picture of an infant when we see the picture of the fully grown adult or the aging person, right? So we want all the intermediate snapshots to build the sort of life history of how a black hole would form and grow. But meanwhile, what is super exciting is that James Webb has revealed the presence of early galaxies, many more galaxies in the early universe than we expected and out much earlier in the universe. So it's like the clock of when things start, you know, all the action starts in the universe, as it were, with stars forming. And uh, seems like 
suggestions are that probably the clock is starting a lot earlier than our current theories led us to believe. So that's that would be super exciting. That would be radical. You know, James Webb is also transforming our view of the nearby universe. So, for example, you know, there's a first observation of a Earth-sized exoplanet system and its atmosphere. And that is just like awesome. We've never been able to do that, right? So remember, this just opens the door for studies of the composition of these atmospheres. And, you know, it leads us to ponder some of the really big questions, right? Are there any atmospheres that are similar enough to ours or um, or have the kind of composition that could support some kind of life, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of opening the window, even in the very nearby universe, with sort of radical observations. Lauren, coming back now from black holes in the depths of space to something a little closer to home, NASA is at work on any number of missions. What is NASA doing right now that excites you? NASA is trying to go back to the moon after all of this time, and this time they're trying to do it a little differently. So a few years ago, they officially named their Artemis program for the effort, and Artemis is a great name for it because she's the twin goddess of Apollo in Greek mythology. And the purpose of Artemis is actually to send the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. So that will be great in, you know, in terms of its own historical significance, but it also differs from Apollo in that NASA really is trying to go back to the moon this time to stay. So rather than just sending you know, a couple of astronauts to the moon at a time to collect samples and leave footprints, you know, that's their motto, it's no longer flags and footprints, they're looking to go sustainably. So creating infrastructure in and around the moon that will allow humans to live and work there long-term so that we have a sustainable presence up there. It's an extremely ambitious endeavor, but it's, I think, what, you know, I think it's what we are ultimately working towards when it comes to our space exploration goals. It's how do we improve upon the major achievements that we've done in the past. And so that's what I'm really excited to see. And what I'm also excited about is this program seems to have some staying power, more so than other ambitious programs have had in the past. You know, this isn't the first time that we've tried to go back to the moon again, or even go on to Mars. But when it comes to administration changes, you know, things can things can get wiped away. But this one survived an administration change. So hopefully it will survive another. And it would be great because that's how we make, you know, impressive things in space happen. They take a while, more, longer than four years of presidency. So I'm very excited about that, and I'll be following it as long as I am reporting on space. We'll return to Earth when we come back. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Lauren, we've talked about the moon and deep space. Now let's come back home and talk about NASA's new project called SWAT that stands for Surface Water and Ocean Topography. And it uses this thing called remote sensing to survey the Earth. Can you tell us what remote sensing is? Sure. So remote sensing is the technology that we use from space to observe our Earth. So that can be in optical wavelengths, that can be with radar, that can be with an infrared. It's using satellites to collect data about our Earth. So looking back at us, the ultimate selfie, if you will. (laughs) Why is it important to do this from high above the Earth? What do we get looking down that we don't get from all the different ways we're able to measure stuff from Earth? Well, I mean, it gives us a more complete picture of the overall globe. So, for instance, remote sensing has been great for collecting data about our climate and observing it over time. So if we want to focus on one patch of the Earth and see how the climate in that area is changing, you know, that's a great use of remote sensing um, and space technology. Another obvious reason is, you know, if we want to look over a distant part of the Earth that is not very accessible, we're getting much more fidelity with the data that we can collect. And also the commercial space industry has taken a big foothold in remote sensing. Uh, Normally, this was an area solely taken by the government and, you know, the public sector. But now private companies are actually building technologies thanks to the proliferation of satellite technology, the miniaturization of satellites, you know, the commercialization of satellites. They are the ones that are actually taking the lead and the reins on remote sensing as we move forward. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second. Who's sending these satellites up there? You know, NASA has been sending remote sensing satellites into orbit for ages now, but we have commercial companies like Leo Labs, for instance, and Planet and Spire. They're all launching small satellites that can look back on the Earth and collect data about it as well. I think the government has understood the benefits of turning those satellites back on Earth and looking and being able to collect data about the world that we live in. One of those satellites is called SWAT. NASA loves its acronyms. Producer Rebecca Shasson talked to a couple experts to learn a bit more about what sets this particular remote sensing satellite apart. So my name is Tamlin Pavelski. I'm a professor at the University of North Carolina, and I'm also the hydrology science lead for the surface water and ocean topography mission. My name is Parag Vaze. I am the SWAT project manager for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. SWAT stands for uh, Surface Water and Ocean Topography. It's NASA's next generation satellite mission that is expected to look at all of the global surface waters. That means what we might say fresh water and also our salt water. So let's divide Earth's surface water into kind of two chunks, right? First, we've got the ocean. It's easy to think about the ocean as a bathtub, right, where there's like one sea level. But in fact, the ocean surface has topography. It has higher and lower places. We have um, a current suite of satellite altimeters. 
They're called profiling or nadir altimeters. That allows us to kind of see features in the ocean that are maybe a couple hundred kilometers in size. And it turns out that most of the ocean uh, energy, like most of the circulation in the ocean and the action in the ocean, is actually smaller than that 200 kilometer size. And so SWAT is going to provide us that first picture of like an order of magnitude smaller of features like eddies and whorls and things like that that are down to maybe more like 20 kilometers rather than 200. One of the things that we know is that sea level, it's rising everywhere, of course, or almost everywhere, but it's rising at different amounts in different places. But our current set of satellites don't give us very good data right near the coast. So what we're left with is we have to use tide gauges, and we have some of them, but they're, you know, they're not evenly spaced around the world's coasts, and there's big spaces, big gaps in between them. SWAT is actually going to be able to see pretty much right up to the coast, and so we're going to be able to use it to better understand sort of how sea level rise might affect coastal communities. If you are going to want to think about what matters to you, you know, when you're trying to predict a flood, right, if you're a homeowner, you probably care where is the flood water going to be and how high is it going to get. And SWAT observes both of those things simultaneously. So with the standard altimeters of the past, how close to the coast could you get with those measurements? Yeah, so we could get to something like 70 kilometers And how close will SWAT be able to get into the coast? So we think we're going to get to something like 10 to 15 kilometers. Wow. So still not right up to the coast, but pretty darn close. And at much higher resolution, as I said. So, you know, it's like saying pixels. Everybody knows about pixels and their monitors, right? So it's like saying, okay, I saw a few pixels on my screen, but now all of a sudden I'm able to, you know, multiply the number of pixels I have by tenfold or a hundredfold. Well, I'm going to see a much better picture much more clearly than what I saw before. And so the goal is to not only measure the height of the water, but also uh, because we're taking these repeating measurements, it gives us a measurement of how that is changing. That is certainly something we can do very precisely with the measurement that I mentioned to you. And when I mean very, very precisely, I mean within a few centimeters. So sort of the, the distance, you know, the size of a quarter. Tell me about what kind of picture we have right now of Earth's surface water. How much do we know? Right now, we, we kind of monitor a few lakes, like the, the really big ones mostly, and then a smattering of smaller ones, but maybe 10,000, 20,000, something like that around the world. There's something like 6 million lakes larger than 100 meters by 100 meters in the world. And most of those, we have no idea what's going on in terms of the amount of water that's being stored in them. And SWAT's really going to help us with that. Lakes are these sort of sentinels of the water cycle. If you want to understand what's going on in terms of the overall water cycle in that whole area that drains into that lake, look at how the water level in the lake is changing. It's kind of integrating. And this data, will it be publicly available? Like, who gets it? Absolutely. That's one of the cool things about NASA, is they're almost kind of radically open. So, as a matter of fact, the only people who get to see this data before it becomes completely free and open are a handful of people who are working on doing some of the first validation work, right? Where we're saying, okay, is this like, is it basically okay? 
Water is, to me, and what makes me personally excited, is, is the closest we get to life. People talk about, you know, exploring Mars. What are they looking for? Water. So I think that is, is going to be something that having the best and, and most extensive information on our home planet is going to make a difference in people's everyday lives. So maybe not in my lifetime, but I'm convinced it will make a difference. So it's something that is not just an academic exercise. I think it's really going to impact and inform people's lives. And, and that's really what SWAT is all about. A lot of the impact of SWAT will be felt by coastal communities. Rebecca went out to find out what that looks like. My name is Barbara Blonder. First and foremost, I'm an associate professor of natural sciences at Flagler College, and the new job for me is city commissioner with the city of St. Augustine in Florida. We have a, a tidal gauge that is one of the national water level observation network gauges that's in Mayport, Jacksonville area, uh, and that's the one to the north of us. And to the south of us, there's another one at Cape Canaveral. The distance between the two tidal gauges is 166 miles as the crow flies, which is a pretty significant gap if you're looking at, at developing local models for uh, you know, resilience planning. So we're working with what would be limited data sets to begin with uh, that we're extrapolating from. And then those extrapolations are also uh, affected by the fact that we sit pretty much smack in the middle of the two tidal gauges. And so it, it seems to us that SWAT would really help to fill that gap. Can you tell me a little bit about what a resilience plan looks like and why these models would be important for it? We have a number of different plans. Um, we have stormwater plans. Uh, we have a resilience plan. We have coastal vulnerability assessments. All of these help us develop a picture of what our current state is and what what we should be planning for. For example, our wastewater treatment plant is at sea level practically. It's it's just a few feet above sea level. Uh, and so how long will we be able to operate that plant? What can we do to protect it from storm surge and you know saltwater intrusion? Uh, and accidental releases of wastewater. Uh, I'm curious, you said that SWAT hadn't really crossed your radar, so to speak. What was your reaction when you saw what it would be doing? Frankly, I was really excited about it. Lauren, as fast as this technology is advancing, where do you see this heading? If you look forward a few years or even more than that, what do you think we're looking at? I mean, I think we're looking at a future when maybe even an average citizen, if they want to find, you know, high fidelity imagery or data about a certain point on Earth, they'll be able to go and buy that data for their purposes because there are going to be so many companies that are selling this and making it more readily available as costs to launch come down and as more people understand the value of having this data. So I think it's only going to get better and sharper and easier to access. Lauren Grush. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. 
The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer and one of the producers of this episode is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Rebecca Chasson. Raphael M. Seeley is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.